So we've been in a series of messages uh, called uh, Necessary Topics and Necessary Discussions over um, significant topics that are happening in our culture today and how we need to speak to them. Uh, Tim got an opportunity to speak about uh, the life issue to begin our series. Um, I spoke on, on race and ethnicity. Doug got a chance to speak on gender, and then Tim last week spoke on the issue of sexuality. Um, as you can hear each one of those topics, to be honest, a 40-minute sermon <laughs> to cover these topics in one time is, is uh, it's extremely hard to do, especially with the topic that I have today and the issue of addictions and substance abuse. Uh, addictions are, are heavy um, in our culture today, and I would dare say heavy even in our church community. So I ask you the question, where do you turn when you are in pain? Where do you turn for comfort, to, a, to anesthetize the struggles? Where do you turn for relief? Where do you turn for rest? See, whatever it is that you turn to other than God is, is a mere replacement of him, and it will ultimately ruin your life. Let me say that one more time. Whatever you turn to other than God has become a replacement for him and it will ultimately ruin your life. Now today, I'm going to be focusing my attention on substance abuse, but I, I want you to know that many of us here don't struggle with substance abuse, but every one of us struggle with some type of sin. And some type of sin has become so habitual in your life, it's your go-to place day after day when you need comfort, when you need relief from pain, when you need rest, when you do not turn to Christ, you turn to something. I'm going to focus my attention on substance abuse, but I want you to take the principles that we talk about with substance abuse and apply it in your life. Also, um, the handout that you received earlier, don't worry about it right now. I'll grab it with you at the end, um, and if you didn't get one, we'll have some more out there at the end for you. Let me pray as we get started here on this really powerful topic. Father, we've entitled this just one more, Breaking the Addictive Habits in Our Lives. And the re reality is, Father, as I, as I look out at my congregation here, your congregation actually, as I look it out at your people, Father, I don't know all of their stories. I don't know what happens in the dark. I don't know what happens in their homes. I don't know where they turn to. But I do know this, that if, if, if what's happening in society and what's happening in so many churches is happening today, it is probably happening here as well. It's one of those topics, Lord, that is so hard for us to just acknowledge and to share with others. There's, there's a shame that comes out because of what we've done or a shame that is connected to what we've been connected to. And, and Lord, I pray that you would remind us in Christ that that shame has been covered 
I pray that you would remind us in Christ as we sang earlier, we are not only forgiven, but we are set free by the gospel of your amazing grace. So today, Lord, as we, as we look through a number of passages and try to glean what it is that you have for us, give us your insight, give us your wisdom, fill us with your spirit, humble us, transform us, change us. Father, we do not want mere sobriety. We want freedom. So I pray that that would be the case in all our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, very honestly, I didn't grow up in a very good neighborhood, <clears throat> Um, there were a lot of drugs in the neighborhood I grew up in, quite a lot. In fact, um, you hear about school shootings. There was a school shooting. I was at the school when we had a shooting at our high school. Uh, my mother, that was the last day my mother said that you were going to be in that school, and she worked three or four different jobs to get me into a different school system. Amazing mother that I have. But So I, I'm not new to seeing drugs and and substance abuse issues around. But, but something's different today. I was trying to think about this. I have had a personal connection with more deaths in the last eight years of people 25 years or younger than I did in the 45 years prior to that. Something's wrong. If I grew up in a culture and if I grew up in a community where drugs were heavy, but now I have seen more deaths of 25 years or younger today, in the last eight years, than I have saw in 45 years prior to that, something is wrong. I don't know what it is. Most of the uh, counseling and discipleship that I've done recently, sad to say, have been with parents or family members who have lost family members due to substance abuse. You know, I was just pulling up some stats We have a really small county here, Warren County. We've had in just the last five years 133 deaths due to drugs just here in Warren County, one of the smallest counties in New Jersey. Narcan, which is used as an antidote for law enforcement and medical staffs to help somebody that has um, overdosed with drugs, there were 635 administrations of that in Warren County alone. Now, that number sounds uh, high, um, and it is, but when you start to hear about the state and our country, it's just ridiculous. In our county, fentanyl, heroin, and cocaine tend to be the, the top three drugs that have taken people's lives in the last four years. The state of New Jersey is even crazier. Uh, the state of New Jersey, we have had 3,000... 2018, I couldn't get 2019 stats. In 2018 alone, we had 3,118 deaths by drugs here in the state of New Jersey. 2,700 the year year before, 2,200 the year before. If you could see, the number is increasing as we go through these. Once again, fentanyl and heroin tend to be the top issue. This was an absolutely crazy number to me. Drug addiction is so serious in the United States that more than 72,000 Americans lost their lives in 2017 alone to drugs. Did you hear that number? 72,000 people. You you fill up a giant stadium, and that's the number of people that we've lost in just one year alone. 
And then it got me thinking about this. What is the answer that the world tends to give to the problem? You know, I I will get some clients that will be mandated to come to counseling and they get an opportunity to choose a Christian counselor and they choose to come to me at times um, for counseling, which is great. Um, But they're also mandated to go to certain programs that are used. And and there are, I'm not not here to um, swipe at a number of different programs. There are a number of programs that are being used today that are the go-to program. Uh, for dealing with substance abuse. But the success rate, if you find out that the success rate of a 12-step program is about 5 to 10%. Nobody really thinks about that because it's just the go-to. It's the average. You go to this program, and that program is going to help you. But the reality is it really doesn't. And so what it creates is this dilemma. Why? Are we in such a bad situation today? I think part of the reason why we're in such a bad situation today is that we've removed God from our lives. And so when we've removed God, we've removed his word. And when we removed his word, we have no sense of meaning. We have no sense of purpose. In essence, if we do not have a God, and if we were not created, if we were basically a mistake by nature, we are basically animals or higher-level animals, we really have no value. And that creates a fatalistic mindset. And I believe that today we are just not taught how to handle suffering well, especially in the United States. We do not handle suffering well here in this country. And we're told that we need immediate comfort. Most of the anesthetics, most of the pain-relieving medications that are used in this country, are used here in this country. We make up 4% of the world's population, but we are involved of 85% of the deaths in the world when it comes to substance abuse, so something's wrong. We have this entitlement mindset that has happened in our world today. You owe me, I deserve this, I need this. And when we do not have an absolute standard, when we do not have an absolute grounding, we become the standard. And that's what Scripture says. When there is no king in Israel, everyone is going to do what? What is right in their own eyes. See, we become the standard of reality. See, it's all about us. It's all about this moment. My way is right. My feeling is right. I live by my feelings. I am doubtful of nothing within me. I am doubtful of everything outside of me. And the problem is, is that the idol has captured my heart. What the world calls addiction, the Bible calls idolatry. Idolatry is where we have replaced God with something else. And the problem is that that idol has captured our hearts and that idol wants us to train others in our lives to give us what we want over and over again. But the problem is, is that if you are caught in addiction or if you know anybody that has been caught in addiction, you will know that this is true. They will live in shame, they will live in fear, and they will live in guilt. They will bully and manipulate other people to get what they want. They will lie. 
They will deceive. They have been deceived. And there's an insatiable hunger that is there in their lives. This devastating loneliness, this paralyzing enslavement. See, the belief is the problem is outside of them and that the answer is within them. But what it's creating is broken homes and and broken marriages, abused and neglected children, unloved, devalued, cast aside, shamed. We've had a generation of people who have grown up not knowing who they are and not knowing whose they are. And they're living in the pain of this life. They're distracted. They're deceived. They're defeated. They're discouraged. They're disgraced. And they're slowly destroying themselves. Is that you? Is that somebody that you know? If we're going to be honest, every single one of us knows somebody like that. Every single one of us. Now, the one thing I do not want you to do walk away with today is this. We have this tendency to look at the worst case scenario and we compare ourselves versus the worst case scenario and we say, well, I'm not as bad as that. That's not what I want you to walk away with. What I want you to walk away with today is this, my big picture that Christ must become your ultimate satisfaction and security in your life, and if he is not, you've replaced him with something else. And it will lead to ruin in your life in some way or another. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. So I want you to try to consider the problem, and um, as Tim and Doug and I have talked about, uh, we usually camp in one passage, and in a couple of weeks, uh, we're going to be starting a series in the life of Abraham. Doug is going to kick off that series, and we're going to walk right through, verse by verse, through the life of Abraham. Um, So as we've been going through the series, uh, I like Tim's word, we have been tethered to Scripture, but we may be going into different places. So today I'm going to take you to a number of different places, so bear with me. So we need to try to understand the problem, and I think part of the problem is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. It says this, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand the things freely given to us by God, And we may impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but by taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. For the natural person does not accept the things that are of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. I want you to think about the problem first in this problem. There is two different types of wisdoms that we have to encounter today. We have a problem. The world would say we all have a problem. The stats I gave you are just stats. It's happening. 
The question is, how do you deal with the problem that I've just described? There is a worldly wisdom that would attack this problem in one way or another, and then there's a biblical wisdom, a wisdom given to us by Christ through his Holy Spirit. And what I have found today is this, that our world today is using words to describe issues in people's lives, and then they're prescribing remedies to deal with these issues in people's lives. And the dilemma is, is that we as a church body have started to take some of their words and take some of their remedies rather than going to God in his word and taking his remedy. Does that make sense? So, so today we may call an affair what? Do we call it an affair, but the Bible calls it what? I can't hear you. Adultery. Okay. We, today, the world may call it manipulation, but we call it in the Bible what? Deceit. A liar. We may call it addiction today, and the Bible calls it what? Idolatry. We may call it today an alcoholic, but the Bible calls it a drunkard. Why does that matter, James? Isn't it harsh to use some of those words? I'm not God. God gave us the book. But what God did for us is this. He wants to expose our greatest problem and point us to our greatest need, our need found only in one person, the word person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I ask you that when we tackle problems, what I want you to do for me is this. I want you to go back to God's word, not to what the world is saying. I want you to go back to God's word as a, as a defining place, a jump-off place, the answer to your life. Because I truly believe and we believe that the Bible is sufficient, it's eternal, it's authoritative, it's life-giving, it's life-changing. This is the only authority that we have for faith and conduct in our lives. So we need to hear what God has to say. So Scripture's wisdom is radically different when it comes to the issue in our lives. In Jeremiah, you don't have to turn there, in Jeremiah chapter 2, It says this, for my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they've hewned out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can't hold water. What what God is saying through Jeremiah is this, that we have rejected God and we've replaced him. So whatever the addiction is that you may be dealing with, whatever the dilemma is that may be there in your life, I am telling you that on the authority of God's word, you have rejected God at that moment in time and you have replaced him with something that is lacking. It won't fulfill you. So scripture is telling us that as you do that, those broken cisterns cannot hold water. They are going to fail you. Whatever this is that you're turning to gives you some temporal blessing, but it will not lead to lasting fulfillment. Turn with me to James chapter 1. A very familiar passage. See, the Bible tells us that we have rejected and replaced God, but the Bible also tells us a second thing. It says that temptations primarily happen from within us. We cannot blame anyone else for our failings. 
We live in a culture today, as you're turning there, James chapter 1, verses 13 and following. We live in a culture today that believes that my greatest problem is outside of me. It's the church. It's my wife. It's my family. It's my job. I need to leave them so that I can be free. But people leave those relationships only to get into the same type of relationship again and again and again because they do not recognize that the greatest dilemma is not outside of them. The greatest dilemma is within them. In James chapter 1, it says this, Let no one say say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself is tempting no one. So I I need you to realize this, that even though God is sovereign and in control of everything that's happening in your life, that God is not putting you into a place so that you will fall. That is not his desire. That is not his plan. He wants you to rest in his son so that you can find victory day after day after day. But then he goes in to say this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own evil desire. He uses a fishing illustration, which is interesting. I never thought about this. Fishermen are what? They're deceivers. Do you get it? They're deceivers. What do they do? They cast their line out there, and what they want people to, the fish, to think is, wow, this is great. And you clamp in on it, and you're dead. And that's exactly what sin does. See, it, it starts with the way you think. It rests in your desires. You get lured away in those desires. You clamp down on something, and it takes you away. He says, but each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. And the desire, when it is conceived, it gives birth to sin. The sin has already started in the thought. The sin has come out in the words. The sin has come out now in action. And the sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Whether this is physical death or spiritual death, I'm not completely sure. I think it ultimately means that we're all going to die physically. And for those of us who do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a spiritual death. So I need you to know that First, that we've rejected and replaced God any time we have an addiction in our lives. Second, I need you to know that the struggle is not primarily outside of us. It's within us, and we have been deceived, and we are being deceived. Third, I want you to know this. If I am dominated by sin in my life, I should be concerned about my salvation. This is harsh, I'm sorry. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6... Verses 9 through 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. There's a section of Scripture where Paul is talking about an old way of life. But he says this, and hear this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit 
the kingdom of God. It's clearly not saying that if you did these sins in your past and you have found freedom in Christ, that you will lose your salvation. It's not what it's saying. What it is saying is this, that for those that are outside of Christ and they have practiced these lifestyles, no matter what their profession of faith is, they are not in the kingdom of God. See, we have a culture of people today that have identified themselves with their sinful behavior, and that becomes their sole identity, and their identity is not in Christ. It's not the way it's supposed to be for a believer. So I need you to understand the problem. The problem is that we've rejected God. The problem is that something's going wrong inside of us. The problem is that if I continue in a pattern in my life, there is something really broken. And even though I can look back to a day that I prayed a prayer that doesn't seem to be producing any fruit in my life, something is wrong. Something is wrong. I want to take you to a passage of Scripture. I want to work through this in Proverbs 23. Now, this section in Proverbs 23, you can turn there if you would like. In Proverbs 23, there is a section of Scripture that talks about drunkenness. And it goes through a series of questions, and it goes through a series of statements. And what I want you to do is this. I want you to use these statements as I work through them with you today. I want you to use these statements and evaluate your own life. Do not think about somebody else in your life. Do not think about the person sitting next to you. I want you to be thinking about you in light of what we're going to uh, talk about here in Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23 is this uh, very interesting uh, passage as it deals with the issue of um, idolatry, falling to what we would call today addictions. It talks about a person that has found themselves captivated with this, and you will see the brokenness in this person's life. Look with me in chapter 23 of Proverbs, verses 29 to 35. It's interesting that he, um, the writer begins, <clears throat> there goes my voice, um, back to adolescence, huh? <laughs> there it goes up and it goes down, there we go. Um, in verse 29, uh, there, uh, there are a series of six questions here. And it, it does something about revealing the heart of humanity. And I, I just want you to work through these six questions with me. He begins with this, who has woe? Who has woe? Interesting word, woe, it's, it's talking about this level of condemnation in their lives. And, and this person... Um, seems to be a person that has gone to a place of recklessness in their lives and this doom that is there. Woe. Let me just read the section and then I'll break it down for you. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down 
in the midst of the sea like one who lies on top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Okay, so you hear it. It's about drunkenness. First question was, who is woe? I want you to think about this. And Mark Shaw, um, he's one of the references on there. He was very helpful in, in working through this section. There's a recklessness that happens when we find ourselves addicted to a particular substance in our lives. We, we don't really care about what's going on in life. There is a, almost a willingness to die. We press the limit. We, we're willing to lay down almost anything to get that substance when we are involved in a life-dominating sin, and we do not see the impending doom. The person that is drunk does not think about getting into a car that they may cause an accident. They don't even think about that. Who is woe? The, the alcohol, the liquid drug that they're dealing with, or whatever substance it is, they do not recognize the recklessness that is in their lives. But the second question is this, who has sorrow? Anybody that has struggled with a life-dominating sin has sorrow in their lives, deep sadness, hurt, bitterness. There's an anger that leads to levels of depression in their lives. You can see it over and over again. Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Think about this. A person that is addicted has found themselves in relationships that are broken. They have been willing to sell almost everything for this addiction, for this idol in their lives. And they have forsaken the love of God, and they've forsaken the love of their spouse, they have forsaken the love of their children for this idol, this craving. It's caused strife and relational issues. But inevitably, what it will lead to is great loneliness in this person's life. They'll serve the idol, and they want everybody else in their lives to serve that same idol, and they're going to train you to serve that idol, and they want you to say yes. They don't like no people in their lives. People that are going to challenge them, they do not like that, so they're going to move you away. They want people that are going to say, yes, I'll do that for you. Who is woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Ungratefulness. The addicted person tends to be ungrateful, not happy with anything, not satisfied. I, I, I need this. I deserve this. You owe this to me. That, that mindset of entitlement and ingratitude is there. It was wounds without cause. Interesting. This is probably physical, but I bet you it could also be spiritual. The physical wounds without cause. You ever wake up for a drunken stupor and all of a sudden you got a black eye? You don't know how you... How did the car... I don't even know how the car... How did I... I don't know how I hit the car like that. We have no idea what is happening in our lives. These wounds without a seeming cause, these physical wounds, but they could also be emotional wounds, shame, hurting deeply. I've made all these wrong choices over and over again in my life. Who is redness of eyes, bloodshot, their pupils are dilated. But spiritually, there's a sense, the eyes in the Bible talk about hope. So there's a hopelessness in this person's life, plagued with the reckless behaviors and the hopelessness of life have led them down a path 
of continual misery. And they go after one more drink or one more piece of drug so that they think it's going to anesthetize the pain, and it doesn't. And so what they do is they cover up. They're not transparent with anybody. They're anesthetizing it. Some of my people have anesthetized themselves by cutting themselves. Some of them have tried to anesthetize themselves by binging or purging. Some have tried to anesthetize themselves by self-harm. Some have used drugs. Some have used sex. Some have used food. Some have used something to cover it up, and it doesn't work. It never does. Verse 30 is interesting. It says, those who tarry long over wine. I want you to think about what captivates your mind. After you've gotten into a disagreement with your spouse or your friend or a family member, what is the thing that goes off in your mind that I need? That's exposing an idol. Is it Christ? I need Christ or I need a drink. Is it Christ or I need to look at some porn? Is it Christ or I need to make more money? I don't know what it is, but what is it that goes off in your mind? See, see, he's saying that this person is tarrying over, long over wine. They're going over and over again in their mind about wine. I need wine. I want to eat wine. But then it goes from thinking and plotting for, to get their idol, but now their idol's not good enough. Those who go after mixed wine. See, it's not enough for the idol that I started with, but that's not good enough. I need to add to it. It needs to be deeper. So now I've gone from a beer or wine to strong drink. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that it is wrong to drink. There are some of you in this congregation that choose to drink, and the Bible says do not be drunk and do not allow it to be an idol. But there are a lot of people today that are struggling with drinking, with drugs, and other addictions in their lives, and they're replacing Christ. So now you have those six questions, and now you've got these addictive behaviors. I've been plotting this. I've been going after hard stuff. And then in verse 31, it gives me three specific warnings. Give us all. It says, do not look at wine while it's, while it's red. It's interesting. What is it about wine? And you look at that, and you, you start to look at the glass, and it just, it, it attracts you. And I don't know what the idol is in your life, but, but whatever you tend to look at tends to bring a level of attraction in our lives. It drives us. It goes back to Adam and Eve. <laughs> if you remember, Eve was confronted, and she was confronted with this, does God really say this. And then she got it mixed up. God doesn't, didn't say this. And in essence, Satan wanted her to doubt the word of God, doubt the authority of God, and doubt the character of God. And then as she looked, it said that she saw this tree was good for food. It was a delight to her eyes and desired to make one wise, and she took it. And she ate it. And then she served it out to her husband. It's the way the path of sin goes. Sin starts in our minds. It influences our desires. It comes out in our actions. And then we share it with others. So don't look at the wine when it's red. Don't think too much about this enticing, attractive thing because it's going to fail you. 
Then the next line is interesting. When it sparkles in the cup. I don't know. You ever have it feel like your sin is calling out to you? Just calling. James. (laughs) James, I know you need me. James. It's like it's over there in the refrigerator. It's just calling my name, and I am kind of like a zombie going towards this thing. Don't look at it when it's red, when it sparkles, and then it goes down, oh, so what? Smooth. (laughs) That sounds like a commercial. (laughs) Oh, it feels so good. Isn't that what Satan wants you to believe? Satan wants you to believe that if you go after this particular sin, it is going to feel so good. Eve, eat the fruit. You will be free. Look at the porn. You will be happy. Take the drink. You will be satisfied. And we go after it. But we don't recognize the dire consequences in verse 32. In the end, it bites like a serpent. It stings like an adder. I've never been bitten by a serpent, thank the Lord. Um, But I don't want to be either. But I want you to think about consequences. I want you to think about this thing that you've been holding on to that you think is going to free you other than Christ. I want you to think of the consequences it's brought into your life. I didn't have time today, but I use this, this framework in our counseling, and we call it the circle of life. And the circle of life is this diagram that I give out to my clients. And in the middle of the diagram is what we call a life-dominating sin. So you put whatever it is in the middle. And then there are a series of connections around it. Home and health and money and work and spiritual life. All these different connections that are connected to that life-dominating sin. And so what I want people to do is this. I want you to put your name, that sin, that life-dominating habit, put in the center, and then I want you to look at how that has impacted your life. See, the problem is when we're in the midst of the blindness, we just do not see. Another homework assignment I have people do is this. I have them write a consequence list. If I fall to this particular sin, what are the consequences that are going to happen in my different relationships? See, this person doesn't even recognize that they're in a pit with serpents and they're going to be lightly stung. Verse 23 is that they've gotten warped in their thinking. Their eyes see strange things. They're probably really drunk. They can't, I mean, way out here. Your eyes are seeing strange things and their hearts utter perverse things. They, they, they're distorting reality right now. Their, their outlook has changed. They, they have gotten to a place where I've had people sit in my office at times saying that God is not good. That the word can't be trusted. That their substance is their only freedom. And as you're sitting there and it's like you can't be serious. This is what you believe, but it is. Because if you believe something long enough, if you listen to a lie, if you dwell on a lie, if you believe a lie, you will act on that lie. And it will feel good temporarily. Verse 34 tells us about the instability in their lives. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea. It's kind of weird. I'm going to lay down in the midst of the sea. Or I'm going to be on a boat like one who lies down on the top of mast. 
doesn't seem to be very comfortable. I mean, on top of the mast, and it's moving back and forth. Come on now, where's the instability? But what's interesting here is this word. I don't know if you see it. It says, they lie down. They're looking for rest, and they can't find it. That's what most of the struggles are today. Last thing here in verse 35. They struck me, and you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Their motive is to continue to sin despite the consequences. I got caught, but I'm going to do it again. I got caught again, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it again because they have not given up their love for their idol. Thanks, James. This has been fun. Turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I guess I kind of made a joke of it, but to be honest with you, that's my counseling week. That's just average. I wish I could say that this is, a fun, this is unusual. This is not unusual. This is normality to me every, every week. Almost every session, somebody walks in with woe. They walk in ungrateful at times. They walk in with broken relationships. They walk in with distorted perceptions. They walk in craving the freedom, but they're clinging to the wrong thing. This is what I see. And if you're honest, this is probably what you see in in people's lives and maybe even in your own. So I stopped here in verse 10. You remember the verse? I read it earlier. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God and do not be deceived? Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I said to you that if you are making this your pattern of life, you have a right to question whether you are truly in Christ. But here's the beauty. Here's the gospel. In Christ, Paul could say, and such were. If you're not opposed to circling a word in your Bible, I want you to circle that word. And such were some of you. You were washed. Washed means that you've been clean, cleansed. Not just from the outside, but from the very inside about what the Holy Spirit has done in your life by applying Christ in your life. You've been clean. You've been washed. You were sanctified. Sanctified means that you are holy. Addicted people live in shame. They live in shame over what they've done in their past. And the Bible says that in Christ, you are holy. Peter said this. You remember in in 1 Peter, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's who you are. Your identity is not a drunk. Your identity is not an immoral person. Your identity, if you're in Christ, is a Christian. You are washed. You are sanctified. 
and you were justified. There is no more legal standing. Actually, there is a legal standing. No more legal standing of condemnation for a believer. The legal standing is that you were forgiven and free and you're righteous in the sight of God. I pray that people would get to a place in their lives that they would recognize that the ultimate satisfaction in their lives is Christ. I love it when I hear one of my people say that they haven't watched porn this week. I love that. I love it when I hear somebody say that, you know, I didn't get drunk this week. I love that. But I don't love that as much as hearing I was captivated with Christ this week. Because sobriety is fleeting. The ultimate satisfaction is found in the person and work of Christ. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. The were, past tense. It's already happened. It's been established. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. I need you to know that sin is powerful. It's brutal. It's subtle. It's deceptive. It's enslaving. But you can be set free. That goes to the handout that you have now. So for those of you that did get the handout, if you didn't, you can grab one on the way out. One of the techniques of those that struggle with addictions is that they tend to hide and lie. They're not open. And they do not have accountability people in their lives because they don't really want to let anybody in. This is a test or an inventory that I give out to my clients. It lists off characteristics of life-dominating sins. What I'm going to ask you to do is to honestly go through this list yourself. Not for somebody else, but for yourself. And where you find a section where you put a check mark and said, I don't think I'm doing well on this, I want you to look up every one of those verses that are there. You practice the sin even though you once tried to stop it, you've tried to stop it repeatedly. You practice the sin and blame others or circumstances for your failure to stop. You deny what you're doing is sinful. You convince yourself that you're not enslaved and can stop at any time, even though you continue to do it. You convince yourself that sin has no power over you since you don't commit it as much as you once did. It's kind of like the relative. I don't drink as much as I once did, so therefore I'm not in bondage. You repeat the sin even though the pleasure and the satisfaction to yourself is short-lived while the harm to yourself and others is considerable. I've never been drunk, but what I've found with most of my people that have been addicted to drugs is that the high in the beginning is the greatest high and everything else they're trying to grab that great high again. And now it's causing misery. You seek to hide your sin, separate set of friends. You lie on a regular basis. You try to make others think that you're living God's way. You act offended or surprised when somebody finds inconsistencies in your life. You're contentious and you seek to develop divisions among people. Maybe you even slander the very people that are seeking to help you. You continue to sin, although you know it's not as enriching as it was, or, or maybe it's obscuring your testimony and that doesn't matter. And despite the knowledge that God's Word tells you to stop sinning and the provisions that He has given you, you continue to fall to that particular sin. 
You repeatedly commit this sin while knowing that it does not please the Lord or bring him glory, but you'll do it anyway. And you continue to sin even though you realize that your deeds, thoughts, words, and actions do not conform to the character of Christ. So that leads to the anthem. In the back of that sheet, there's a strategy that um, John Piper uses for dealing with sexual sin. I've adapted it for um, dealing with temptation. And he uses this acronym, ANTHEM. And he starts by saying this, you need to avoid as much as possible and reasonable the sights and situations that arouse unfitting desires. I just say run. You remember when Joseph was caught by Potiphar's wife? What did he need to do? He, he ran. You need to run. Second, say no to every lustful thought within five seconds, whether that lustful thought is about pornography or another person or that lustful thought is about drugs or alcohol. That thought, when it comes into your mind, you got to get rid of it. You have to say no. Titus tells us we have the ability John Owen, in his little book on mortifying sin, said, be killing sin, or sin will be what? Killing you. James tells us that resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Avoid, say no, turn your mind forcefully to Christ as the superior satisfaction. I need to turn it away from this glass of wine that is sparkling and calling my name, and I need to turn my mind forcefully to Christ. The Christ, you're my satisfaction, you're my hope, you're my greatest desire, and you need to turn. But then you need to hold on to the promise and pleasure of Christ firmly in your mind until it pushes out all other images. See, this is where most people fail. They look at the wine, they turn to Christ, but then they turn back to the wine. You need to turn so forcefully and hold on so vehemently that you're in a battle The flesh is warring against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. It is contrary to you. You need to fight for your joy. Hold on to it. Piper gives this interesting illustration. I know I'm going long, so bear with me. Piper gives this illustration of a a garage door is falling down on your child. What are you going to do? You're going to get under that garage door and you're going to hold it up as long as you can until your child leaves and is protected. And if you can't hold it long enough, you're going to scream, help! That's what we need to do when it comes to sin. Hold on to the pleasure of Christ and if that doesn't work, call out to your accountability person. Enjoy a superior satisfaction in Christ. Rejoice in him. Instead of the complaining heart that we saw in Proverbs, I want you to have a rejoicing heart. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And then you need to get engaged. You need to move into useful action. Don't be sitting down on a couch in front of a, in front of a gaming system or in front of your TV or in front of your computer or on your Facebook. Get up and do something and move into useful action. I create these three plans. You'll see them there with my clients. Call it a construction plan. It's a daily plan, something that we want them to do every single day that's going to help them grow in Christ. And, and then we help them create an evacuation plan, kind of like we did those you know, fire drills when we were in school. 
and now they call them active shooter drills. Where are we going to get out of here if danger comes? So when the danger of your lust comes, where are you, how are you going to run? And then the third plan we ask them to create is a reconciliation plan. How am I going to make it right to those that I've hurt and harmed? Gave you some resources there as well. I want you to know that Christ is your greatest satisfaction. I want you to know that Christ is your only answer, your only hope. Lend with this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What a beautiful word. Or finally in Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirst. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. The ultimate rich food and the ultimate wine is Christ. Let him rest in your heart today. So Lord, I pray for my um, brothers and sisters, my friends that sit here today. Father, I got one finger out, three fingers point back because there are things in my life, in my past, and things I can still struggle with today that take my vision away from you. Take my vision away from your son. Lord, please forgive me. Forgive me for every thought and every word and every attitude and every action and finding my satisfaction, my security, my significance in anything but your son. It's foolishness, Lord. It's a disgrace to your son. It's a belittlement of his cross. So, Lord, please forgive me and forgive us. Father, for those of us that are here today that that are struck and caught in a pattern of life-dominating sin, Father, help them to know that they're not alone. Help them to know that they can talk freely. Help them to know that there is forgiveness and freedom available to them right now, purchased by your Son, applied by your Spirit, through your Word. I pray that they would be humble enough to ask for help. Father, for those of us that may know somebody in our families or friends that are struggling, Help us to be like Paul said through Galatians. When a person is caught in a transgression, help us to, those who are spiritual, to restore them in a spirit of gentleness by applying your gospel grace. So help us to do that today. In Jesus' name.